Hi, and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. Today's episode is called Comedy Shorts, so prepare for some entertaining yarns. I'll also share with you an interview I recorded earlier with two of today's authors, John Steiner and Helen Meany, about what inspired their stories and what their approach is to writing comedy. You may be surprised by what they have to say. Before I play the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain some colourful language. Our first story is from Sydney author Angie Holst. It is called Addicted and was performed live by Lauren Hamilton-Neal at the Bondi Feast Festival in 2015. How did I end up in rehab? I couldn't sleep at night for the twitching, couldn't stop thinking about it. I would clench and unclench my fist over and over again. Clench, unclench, twitch. Without it, my life was nothing. I had lost confidence in my ability to make simple decisions. I needed its affirmation, its bolstering. Going cold turkey left me a basket case. I couldn't concentrate at work, couldn't engage with friends, couldn't muster up the most basic of conversation. I felt alone, isolated without it. I was outside everything. I was no longer part of the group. When I found myself awake at night, desperate for another hit and looking for the company of those night owl friends, I knew I needed help. They took it off me when I arrived at the clinic. Shut me away in a room without any stimuli. They said I needed to get back into my old life, engage again with work, family and outdoor hobbies. But I just wanted one more hit. One more awesome tweet to get to 5,000 followers. I miss the highs, like the day I was retweeted by Will Anderson. I don't think I'll ever be that happy again. That was Lauren Hamilton-Neal performing Angie Holst's Addicted. Lauren is a Sydney actor, formerly from Queensland. She claims to have professionally murdered several husbands in the TV show Deadly Women, was herself murdered in The Suspects, and shamelessly flirted with a man far too old for her in ABC TV's The Gods of Wheat Street. Next we'll hear Kurt and the Interview by Slade Quinn. The story is performed by Joel Horwood and was recorded live at Knox Street Bar, Chippendale. Can you tell me, Kurt, just why it is you want this position? Uh, Well, sir, uh, I want this position as I feel I am ready for it. I have extensive experience in the department and know the job well. I enjoy challenges and feel that the next challenge for me lies in this position. I am kind-natured, I am well-liked by everyone in the department and feel that a manager's position will give me more interaction with them all. Yes. Yes, these are certainly traits that a manager should have. But before we move on, tell me, what could you bring to the position? What is it that will set you apart from other candidates? Well, you see, sir, I believe I could bring much to the position as I feel I am ready for it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, I would like to be sure that you can appropriately handle the position. It can be stressful, and no matter how capable a man may be of the job, I would not give it to him unless I knew he could take the stress. Tell me, Kurt, outside of the office, how do you alleviate the stress? Kurt's mind drifted back to the weekend just gone. 
He thought about the slab of beer Joel and he had drunk throughout Saturday. He thought about the club they had ended up at and the several rounds of tequila shots they consumed on arrival. He then thought about the marijuana that Josh had snuck into the club and then smoked outside the club. Socialising with friends is something I find very relaxing, Kurt said. Kurt thought about stumbling from room to room in the club and slurringly introducing himself to a group of women who all made a hasty retreat. He thought about finding the girl sitting alone on the couch whom he sat down to talk to. Finally, he thought about the older woman he had seen and how he had walked up to her and sloppily presented his lips and his tongue, hoping she would find it too enticing to resist. Generally just meeting new people, I think, is also a good way of spending time, Kurt said. Yes, and human interaction is paramount for a manager's position. But what about hobbies and general interests of that nature, Nilan asked. Kurt thought back to the older woman he had attempted to kiss and her boyfriend or husband who had not been impressed by his audacious manoeuvre and had pushed Kurt down. Kurt remembered how he had painstakingly gotten back to his feet and tried to punch the boyfriend or husband who had left with his wife or girlfriend some minutes before. I box, sir. I believe healthy competition is a fantastic way to relieve stress, Kurt said. Absolutely. Nealon said, grinning. There is nothing more honourable than two men meeting head to head, face to face and bowing it out in the name of competition. Any other pursuits, Kurt? Kurt thought back to the band that had been playing. He thought about Josh and Joel finding him by the stage. He thought about the three of them hurling their bodies and thrashing their limbs along with the man playing his acoustic guitar. He remembered storming the stage and violently moving with the music and defiantly banging his head along as the bouncers dragged him, Josh and Joel out of the venue. Music is a passion of mine, sir, Kurt said. Ah, of course, art is important. It's food for the spirit and the soul. And let me assure you, there is no point living in a physical vessel without a healthy spirit and a healthy soul. Neelan had moved from behind the desk and was standing over him menacingly. Neelan placed one hand on the back of Kurt's chair, the other on the armrest. Kurt was scared. If you were a fruit, what fruit would you be? Neelan asked Kurt, bluntly, with stern, impetuous enunciation. Kurt felt helpless, but only for a second. He saw what Neelan was doing. He was hitting him with the most difficult and important questions of a job interview in rapid succession to test his steel, to see what he was really made of. The man was diabolical. The man was a genius. I would be a pineapple, sir. Why? Neelan demanded. Uh, Because people meet me and they think I am rough and spiky, but quickly realise I am soft and sweet on the inside, sir. Neelan whisked away from his side and was now sitting on the desk, leaning forward, staring directly at Kurt. What song best describes your work ethic? I still haven't found what I'm looking for by you two. Why? Because my work is never done. Neelan vanished from the desk and appeared by Kurt's feet, his head sticking out from under the chair. What do you think about when you are alone in your car? If if I'm driving, then I keep my mind on the speed of my car to ensure safety. If I am stopped at a light, I focus entirely on the lights to ensure efficiency. And if you are neither moving nor stopped at lights, then I think, 
Why am I just sitting in my car? Neelan was now suspended from the ceiling, hanging down, his face just inches from Kurt. In the news story of your life, what would the headline say? Uh, Man, 24, died by stress of quiz. Neelan quietly sat at his desk across from Kurt, enveloped in deep analysis. He leant forward with his elbows on the table and the tips of his fingers making contact with their corresponding partners. His head was cocked back and he looked directly at Kurt. Moving on, Neelan said. Right, let's have a look at your resume, shall we? I trust you brought a copy, Neelan asked. His demeanour had undertaken a complete metamorphosis and he was now the friendly, politically correct interviewer that he had been moments before the barrage of questions. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, here it is. Kurt passed Neelan someone else's resume and Neelan scanned over it. Kurt couldn't help but wonder why Neelan didn't have a copy himself. Kurt had been required to forward one along with his application for the position and brought one for the purpose of appearing prepared. Uh, so it says here you have been working here at VNL Enterprises for several years now, Kurt. Tell me, young man, just what is VNL Enterprises? Uh, VNL Enterprises owns a long-standing chain of successful Melbourne-based convenience stores. Is that it? Well, I, I mean, that, that's a quick summation, sir, obviously. Uh, VNL is a large company that deals with much more... Kurt was cut off. No, Kurt, not that. The way you said it. Is that it? Where is the pride? Where is the ambition? Where is the feeling, Kurt? For God's sake, man, if someone were to ring up the call centre and ask what is V&L Enterprises, would you simply reply by addressing them with a lifeless tone void of any feeling like some sick, lost child who has been abandoned by his parents, left for dead in the harsh winter of the Scottish Highlands, his only hope for survival, the pack of wolves that finds him and feeds him and teaches him the ways of the wise creature and how to survive in a dog-eat-dog -dog world? Uh... No, sir, of course not. Uh, I would act like the man that that child grows to be. Hmm, yes. I would act as though I have already faced the harsh winters, that they no longer frighten nor scare me. Uh-huh, yes, yes, Neelan was getting excited. A slight smile crossed his face. I would stand in defiance of the perils put forth by the rigorous climate. The timeless challenges that lay ahead would be nothing to me, nothing. Yes, yes, Neelan said as his eyes widened. Kurt stood up slowly while he spoke. I would take the ferocious abilities that I learned from my wolf brethren and I would use them to vanquish all imposing enemies. Yes, I would fight tooth and nail for what is mine, for my land, for my right to walk as a free man on this earth. Yes, I would allow no man to take from me what is mine. I would defy all impositions upon my sovereignty. Yes, for I am man and nothing shall come between the good of the people and their blessed right to life. Yes! Neelan stood up in an exaggerated motion, his arms up in the air, very excited by Kurt's speech. And what would you tell them, my boy? Neelan thundered. I would tell them that VNL Enterprises owns a long-standing chain of successful Melbourne-based convenience stores. Yes, my boy, yes! Neelan's hand shot out to shake Kurt's. Oh, my Kurt, you certainly understand what it is that this company is about, don't you? You definitely understand the true nature of what it is to be successful in this convenience business. Neelan was beaming with delight at Kurt. He stood firmly, gripping his hand for what, to Kurt, felt like a very long time.
That was Little Fiction's regular, Joel Horwood, reading an excerpt from Kurt and the Interview. Slade Quinn's story is part of Spineless Wonders Slinkies, a digital platform for emerging authors under 30. Our next short story, or microfiction, is Northwest Passage, by Sydney author John Steiner. Late that morning, when the peak hour traffic had thinned out, Maureen decided to make another attempt at finding a Northwest Passage to Stonefields Mall. She had been studying the most current maps and felt certain that a way through the West Hills district must lie somewhere between Baylor's Road and the golf course. To find the passage would mean establishing a direct route from the eastern side of town to the mall without having to go through the city centre, cutting 20 minutes off travel time and securing Maureen's place in the history books. The trip was a disaster from the start. As soon as they were on the Northern Expressway, Henry vomited all over Fiona, and Maureen nearly drove off the overpass as she twisted around trying to minimise the mess in the back seat. As they came off the motorway onto Elizabeth Drive, Fiona's bottle of apple juice fell onto the floor and spilled all over the CDs that were scattered down there. And Baylor's Road, which by that time of day should normally have been fairly clear, was bumper-to-bumper traffic because of a charity cricket match at the showground, so that Maureen wasted 15 minutes just getting from Queen Street to Tunnel Drive, where she intended to begin looking for the passage. When she discovered a long, straight road leading almost due west, she thought she'd found it. It was certainly wide enough to be a main thoroughfare cutting across town. But as she drove along it, it quickly dwindled down to a single lane and turned out to merely be an access road along the edge of a small nature reserve. It ended in a cul-de-sac surrounded by a copse of trees. Maureen had no choice but to turn around and make her way back to Tunnel Drive to continue the search further north. By that point, the children were getting cranky and saying they wanted to go home, fearing a mutiny. Maureen tightened discipline, threatening to revoke television privileges for a week if order was not maintained. Food supplies were running low, and the children were sick of eating the stale biscuits from the glove box. Maureen reduced their apple juice rations to one sippy cup each, further fueling the seditious talk in the back seat of the car. She stopped by the roadside to speak to some locals, who spoke of a legendary great road that headed westward to a place of enormous car parks, but could offer no concrete information or directions. Maureen was sure that they were referring to the passage, and was convinced that she was very close. But the afternoon wore on with no sign of it, and she knew she had to get home to start dinner, so she reluctantly abandoned the search and turned back. She vowed to try again as soon as she could organise another expedition. She just hoped she could convince her backers at home to support one more attempt, for she was certain that the next time around she would find the passage, and at last take her place on history's stage. That was popular Little Fiction's MC Adam Norris reading Northwest Passage by John Steiner. Next we have The Ibis and the Real Estate Agent, written by Helen Meany, and the second piece today performed by Joel Horwood. The suburb was as full as a Macca's car park bin. For the first time in, I don't know, as long as I've been alive, seven years, 23 weeks, no one was moving in or out. The solar-lit signs with cosy inside pictures had stopped going up and down, and I hadn't heard any shouty weekend numbers men in weeks. Every neat line of houses was stuffed with all breeds of people, snuggled up all broody content in forever homes, instead of all that moving in and out humans round here used to do. 
How this came to be, I do not know. Perhaps the humans just decided they liked the place and they were staying put now. That seems simple enough, I suppose, which makes it all the more surprising that Barry, an actual human, somehow hadn't noticed. The only time I ever spoke to Barry, Offspring, Reba in 2K, ham and cheese wraps and bananas, muffins on Fridays. I was working on a rock-hard cheesy mite I'd found outside the primary school library. I sympathised with its previous owner as soon as my beak met that rigid cheese. But fortunately, I'm not picky. Barry had arrived early for home time bell and was pacing the quadrangle like a zoo animal. Chopped veggies and hay, inedible mulch. When you spend as much time as I do in the schoolyard, you hear the mum and dad talky-talk at bell time and I knew all about Barry. I'd noticed his recent decline and guessed that the scratch my back and I'll scratch yours agreement he'd beaten half a dozen or so other real estate agents to win from the PNC hadn't turned out to be the windfall he'd expected. But it's complicated, so let me explain. He'd promised the principal, Ms Crow, name still makes me laugh, to pay for all sorts of stuff for the school. And in return, she let Barry put ads for his business at the bottom of the school newsletters, hang a picture of his ripe peach head next to the chess trophies and school captain role, and get shouty at trivia nights, so all the other mums and dads knew who he was and that he wanted to help them find shinier houses than the ones they had now. In return, his generous support got the school new paint, Heritage Green, seen worse. Bike shed, pigeon magnet. And new lockable roller door for the canteen window. Very bad. So there was Barry, pacing, pacing, all agitated. His face gone from peachy to uncooked pizza base. His hair needed preening. I'd seen some of his recent talky times with other parents and they'd been not so smiley. He less and less visited the little islands of chitty chat that floated around the quad at home times. He stopped the zoo walkies and sat on a low bench outside the library, pushing his hands into his face. I knew what it meant. It always pained my little heart to see a human in distress. I flapped closer and cleared my throat. He looked up and gave a little jump when he saw me. It's no use, Barry, I said in my clearest voice. You'll never get a commission out of any of them. Just cut your losses and move on. He blinked. What? That lady agent sponsor before you, Lucy Desario, she already found homes for them all. He crinkled up his face the way humans do when they're fighty and looked at me like it was my fault, then flapped his hands. Shoo! Barry, it's okay. I know what's happened. I just wanted to say... He held up a hand. Just wait right there. You, he pointed his cheese stick finger at me, don't get to say anything. If it wasn't for you and your bloody mates, I could maybe ride this out. But no, you lot are the last friggin' straw. Well, this was unexpected. I ruffled up in defiance. He waved his hand toward the front office. Just had a meeting with Crow, and you know what she wants now? After she's already squeezed me completely dry, I shook my head. Another six grand. Six bloody grand for new fancy vermin-proof bins. Vermin. You know what that means? Vermin. I, I couldn't tell if he was being rhetorical or honestly thought he was talking to a pigeon. 
I was also deeply shocked he'd used the V word to my face. We are protected, you know? He laughed. Well, tell that to the kid whose sushi bloody roll you, according to Crow, snatched out of his precious mitt last Thursday. That wasn't me, I lied. Look, I haven't got six grand. Dead up to my eyeballs, defaulting on everything. No sales in three months. Crow says if I don't cough up for the bins, she's going to renege. Take down my picture. I put everything I had into this deal. Whatever happened to full disclosure? They all knew. That's the only reason Lucy de friggin' Serio finally gave it up. Of course it's obvious now. Scorched earth policy. I honked in disagreement. <laughs> she helped them. All the people are cosied up broody now in houses they like. Isn't that your job? I run a business. Contented, settled, that's the last thing any of us want, Lucy included. Now they're a bloody community. No one's going anywhere. My only hope is for some old nonna to finally cark it and hope like hell the grandkids don't move straight in. I was confused. His talk was all inside out. And you knew too, you filthy tip turkey. Why'd you wait to speak until now, huh? I picked at a mite near my toe. I can't sleep. All night I think about setting fire to wheelie bins, slashing tyres, tagging front fences, anything to shake them up a bit. Tried warning them about the big bloody tunnel and off-ramps, but all they do is dig their heels in more. I shrugged my wings. I thought about those new V-word bins that weren't going to happen and Barry's face picture coming down. Meanwhile, you stand there all smug, strutting around like you own the freaking place. I straightened up. Any sympathy I'd had for this poor creature had been carried off with his V-words and upside-down talk. Excuse me, Barry, I said, but this is my home. Just then the home-time bell ding-a-linked. It was time for me to get flappy before the stampede. I picked up my cheesy mite and off I went, leaving Agent Pizza Base alone on the bench. He could sort it out himself. That was Helen Meany's The Ibis and the Real Estate Agent. I caught up recently with both Helen Meany and John Steiner to chat about the stories we've just heard. I am here with two of our Little Fictions writers. Could you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, my name is John Steiner and I wrote a book of short stories called The Last Wilkies and Other Stories. My name is Helen Meany and I haven't written a whole book of stories. I've written some stories. We're featuring a couple of stories from you both. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what led you to write those. So Northwest Passage kind of stems from my love of reading about history. Ten years ago, I started reading about Shackleton's voyage and then Cook's voyage, and I just kind of got obsessed with explorers particularly. So Northwest Passage is kind of a humorous, satirical take on, you know, the endless search for what they thought was a Northwest Passage. That searching for the quickest route to somewhere, is that something that you kind of connect with or you feel like you do on a regular basis or is it more the inspiration came from your love of history? I don't know where it came from. I think I got interested in retelling history except making it sort of funny or more contemporary. Yeah. Like I also have this story in my book which is about um, Magellan in the Philippines 
where I just tried to tell the actual story, but sort of make people talk as if it was now. I mean, I am interested in cities and particularly in like navigating through them. When I moved to Sydney, because Sydney is such a crazy, weird city, you know, it's not like a grid. And so like one day you'd be like, oh, wait, so that road connects Newtown to Enmore that way. You know, you'd, you'd sort of like these things would be revealed kind of like Minesweeper. You'd be yes. like, suddenly this connection would open up and you go, oh, that suburb and that suburb actually connect that way. Yeah, I remember having this real black spot around where um, carriage works kind of linked up through to kind of city road and then suddenly walked it one day and it was like the box opening and, and the light shining through. Helen, your story, the Ibis and the real estate, where did that come from? How was that birthed? Um, I think that was birthed sitting in my kid's schoolyard waiting for home time bell, watching all the parents, <laughs> watching the Ibises. Um, and also, you know, when you become a school parent, you notice how, uh, I guess, how local businesses interact with schools and the arrangements they have. And so... Yeah, it was just a whole lot of things coming together, but mainly watching the Ibises and the, watching the Ibises, watching people and imagining what the Ibis might make of humans yep. and our conversations. Giving them a voice. Yeah. The pieces that we're talking about have more of a comedy kind of edge. Is that your preference as writers or do you work across different kind of styles and genres? What are you more drawn to? I wouldn't say I'm drawn to writing comedy or even writing humour, but often that's what comes out and I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, I didn't realise how funny um, the Ibis and the real estate agent was as a story until I heard it read out loud at Little Fictions Mm -hmm. and people laughed and I thought, oh, I didn't actually realise this was actually funny. I just wrote it this voice and it turned out that the Ibis's voice was actually quite comedic. It was all about the character, I think. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sort of an intentional thing trying to get gags out of it. It's just the way that this character spoke. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that was rather surprising and delightful. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I didn't sort of, I don't really go for gags. They usually just accidentally come across two characters. Yeah. Because life is pretty funny, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. Unintentionally. And I think sometimes that just comes out in the stories. Uh, I like this idea that, comedy can be born from obsession as well that it's actually those really kind of serious dark moments where people are so obsessed with an idea that it's hilarious you know that yeah then to read it on paper Mm. the way that people actually think sometimes Mm. that sort of inner monologue we have to have it sort of reflected back in us it's funny often darkly funny yeah Yeah. there's like so many david foster wallace Mm. stories which are exactly that like it's someone's inner monologue and you relate to it but it's so darkly funny for that and wasn't it did George Saunders say he started out trying to write really serious stories and it wasn't working? And then he was like, yeah, because he was trying not to be funny, but he is naturally such a funny yeah. guy that then when he was like, OK, I'm just going to write what comes naturally. And that's when it kind of. Yeah. And there's his... also a great quote from him, which I keep reading, but I won't be able to actually even quote this properly. And it's something about humor happens when you get to the truth quicker than you expect to. Mm. And yeah, I think there's something in that. I can't that's not exactly the exact quote, but it's something very similar to that. And I think that's right, and that's certainly the case in his work. You sort of you hit, get hit in the face with stuff and you just, it's like, it's not necessarily funny in any other situation, but you just get to the truth quicker than you would, and that's unnerving. And I think a reaction to that is often just a laugh. And would you call him a humorous writer, if you had to genre him? No, I don't. There's humour in his writing, and there's satire in his writing, but I don't think 
It's not gag. It's See, not... I find I'm almost like a, offended in some snooty way by yeah. the label. Like, yeah. I'm not a humor writer. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. a serious writer yeah. with occasional... Well, I think that's really interesting because mm. I think some people would say, oh, no, like, I'm attracted to comedy. But mm. I think it's really valid to also point out that that's not what you write, you know, mm. as such. Yeah. But it's a byproduct, I guess, of the writing is humorous moments. Exactly. Like Steve Martin wrote a book of funny short stories, and they are funny. But that said, humor is a great way to connect with people, and especially in a live setting. You know, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I think people go to little fictions and especially love the funny stories because, you know, you go and you want to laugh. You yeah. You have a good, like, it's you fun. Be entertained. To, yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to ask you both a little bit about your practice as writers. So I wondered if for you um, routine and schedule plays a large part or you write when inspiration hits or you write because it's an itch that has to be scratched and you just have to make the time. Um, all of the above happens. Yeah. And I'm still at uni studying creative writing, so you know, having a deadline for an assignment always helps. But I try to write every day, or at least sit down and tell myself I'm going to write in this mm -hmm. time. I don't always write. You know, often just finding that time in, in your life when you've got other stuff going on, you just sort of got to carve it out and claim it. And if you don't, then it just slips away. And if you actually have it habitually that time to use it, even if you don't use it, if it's there, then you can use it. But so, yeah, but sometimes stuff just comes out of nowhere. Sometimes you've just got to sit down and write anything until you get to the heart of something and you realize that you actually do have an idea. I'm kind of just a when inspiration strikes yeah. type. And the problem is that it sort of strikes, like the older you get and the more in this routine you get, you don't notice so much like cool, weird, funny things and have those ideas. So I wish that I had more of a routine because I think that is actually what real writers do. You have talked a little bit already about observing the way a piece changes, I guess, when it's read aloud. So mm. when you talked about discovering that this piece was quite funny when it was read aloud. I wondered if you could both speak a little bit more about that experience of seeing a work that you've written for the page being brought to life and what it's like to have someone else perform your work or interpret your work. It's pretty interesting. Sometimes it brings new life to the characters or, you know, like a take on the characters that you didn't really anticipate or that, that wasn't really how you saw the characters. And sometimes it's a bit confronting because you're sort of like, no, 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 that's not right. Um, I've read my own stuff and because I always like hear in my head how I want my characters to sound. How is that experience of reading at Little Fictions for you? Is that something that you enjoy or is that something where you go, oh, actually I'd prefer to like be on the other side, you know, behind the page? I'm or... usually terrified right up until the moment that I say the first word and then I love it. Well, it's certainly something to be said to be able to turn up and sit back and have somebody else read your work and you don't have to do it because I've only done that a few times, done the reading, not little fictions, but other things a few times and that's, I find that really nerve-wracking. So just to be able to turn up and have somebody else do the hard work and you've already done your work is actually really nice. It can be surprising and delightful to hear somebody else read and you see things, that, they pick up things that you hadn't or they, you know, they can do the funny voices. Um, at other times, it's yeah, it's sort of jarring because I expect to hear my voice, particularly, um, you know, if it's a non-fiction piece or something. It always brings something different to it, though, and I think and it's good to have professionals do it too. People who actually can get up and do it clearly. 
both of you have also written for film or screen. Is is that right? Yeah. Um, if you could talk a little bit about what the process of writing for that medium is versus, you know, writing for the page, or maybe you don't see that many differences. So like writing for screen, you know, there's less of what's going on in someone's head and it's more just like action and dialogue. And I tend to just write that way anyway. So the things I've written for screen have been not that much of a, I didn't have to adapt much to convert them, I guess. Mm. The stuff that I'd written before I wrote my own things, I did some TV writing for kids TV several years ago, which was really fun, sometimes frustrating because the characters already developed, the storylines already developed, and just kind of write the script, which is fun, but it's sort of, you're limited, but you also don't have that attachment to it. It's like, you know, it's a commission piece, it's somebody else's idea, so you don't have that personal attachment to it, I guess. And so it's quite good in that way to actually learn. So yeah, it's a different experience than actually developing your own work. If you were to write a piece for live performance specifically, so if you're writing a piece for Little Fictions Mm. or to be read elsewhere, do you feel that your approach would be different in any way? Yeah. For live performance, you want something that's like lively and that has action, I guess, not Mm. something that's just, you know, like describing a grey sky and buildings, Mm. but is actually like there is a character doing something and it's like there's a tale to unfold. Yep. Yeah, and and shorter is usually better, I've noticed too, Yeah, with those things. Because, I mean, you only have so long to keep the audience's attention as well. Even though, like, everyone's always very, very attentive and quiet and it's so amazing to sort of have that sort of audience. Um, Often, sometimes in the longer pieces, you can start to feel that drifting away. Maybe just, you know, people start eating again and drinking. Yeah. (laughs) You just kind of feel the energy go down a bit. But with the shorter pieces, you kind of hear they're right there until the end and then... Often when a story finishes, you know, almost before you expect it to, you know, you do have that sense of like, oh, it's finished. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people are most left wanting more, which is probably a good way to be. So I think shorter, generally, writing for those little fictions, because they're little fictions. They're not big fictions. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. But dialogue is good and just action, yeah, dialogue and action. You have stood on stage and read. There must Mm. be some stories that you're like yeah I can really do something with this and others where you're kind of like I agree I think sometimes the longer pieces can be challenging um but so often it's dependent on the story I think Mm. if there's kind of a really clear point or a justification Mm. for the length so it's not just meandering for a period of time you you're working towards some kind of punchline yeah um punctuation that's your kind of game as the actor is to keep people you know on track when you're just trying to flesh out material, sometimes you're, you're working, you know, mm. to get the material across. Um, but then sometimes the shorter pieces can be really challenging as well. It's mm. almost like it's not quite enough there before it, it's gone. Or the it's, ending of shorter pieces, I think, can be really challenging and tricky. Yeah. yeah. It takes a few seconds for people to settle down and be like, oh, okay, a new story has started. So if it suddenly ends before the... But I just only yeah. stopped yeah. chewing my pretzel. Then. Yeah. <laughs> and just to go back to you guys again and your kind of journey, what's been your journey to being the writers you are today? Is it something you've just always done? Is it something that you fell into? Well, you mentioned earlier an itch that you just have to yes. scratch. That's what it used to be and every now and then is, but it used to be that I just like had to write stuff that happened or like ideas that I had and so yeah it was just kind of always this thing that I did. Is that from when you were quite 
young yeah. or yeah. Yeah. So you've always been a, a story writer yeah. and a tale teller. Back to like when I was nine or something and reading yeah. all the Lord of the Rings books and writing all these, you know. Was fantasy dragon. your original yeah. way in? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and when did you shift from fantasy into into other stories? There was a point probably end of high school. Or, well, I kind of got out of fantasy then in high school. I don't know. Somewhere along the way, I discovered Raymond Carver and Charles Bukowski and then kind of completely reinvented how I wrote. Or was kind of like, what? You can do that? I mean, Raymond Carver was pretty life-changing in terms of writing because, you know, you sort of were like, oh, he does all these things that at the time just seemed really, I didn't know you could do that. I want to try doing that. With me, I always wrote when I was a kid, except I hated doing it because I had terrible handwriting <laughs> and everything was longhand then. It was before computers, didn't have a typewriter. And I liked coming up with the ideas and I always did creative writing assignments. And that was really big in our school system when I was a kid, you know, getting kids doing creative writing. But I hated doing it. Um, it was just torturous. <laughs> I'd always ever do one draft because I couldn't bear copying it out again and again. And... So, but, you know, surprisingly, I, you know, I was always the one whose story got read out in class. And I was always incredibly embarrassed. <laughs> um, but I didn't think that was something you could do. I didn't really know anyone who was a writer. or never sort of imagined that actually books came from people that actually sat down and write them. They were just like these fully formed things that just sort of sat on the shelves. <laughs> um, but when I went to uni, I studied art and I studied film. And for several years, I worked in animation. And through that, I sort of fell into doing screenwriting for animation. And by then, you know, I had a computer and I didn't need to <laughs> write everything longhand. And it's like, oh, okay, this isn't actually so hard after all. But then it took, you know, a few years before I actually thought, um, you know, maybe it's something I should try and take seriously and try writing my own stuff. So that's what sort of led me to this point but it took a while but now I look, I look at my kids I've got two primary school kids and they sit there and write stories on the computer typing mm. away happily and I just think wow you're so lucky <laughs> <laughs> and there's all these you know great um, outlets for them to be able to do that now they can make these beautiful documents and put pictures in and play with the font and mm. I just think wow if I had the opportunity to play with that as a kid I just would have just had so much fun but anyway it's a really nice story about technology actually engaging people mm. with literature <laughs> as opposed to yeah. yeah pushing them away. Did you have an aversion to handwriting as well? <laughs> I don't think so. I remember writing a lot of things by hand and illustrating them and then mimeographing them and handing them out <laughs> at school. Like, I wrote oh, this story wow. about a chicken. <laughs> and, um, but my mother also was an academic, so she had a typewriter, so I had access to a oh, typewriter. See, so I had this whole like file folder with like in progress, finished, needs work, mm. poems, you know, like I filed all my stories away. Like I definitely was like, I'm going to be a writer. It's beautiful. Before I was going to be a <laughs> helicopter pilot and various other things. <laughs> um, I think that's really great. I think that's, that's heaps. I yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the stories in today's Comedy Shorts episode. We very much welcome your feedback on our show. So please head to the 2RPH website, www.2rph.org.au, and leave a comment. Little Fictions is brought to you by Sydney short story publisher Spineless Wonders. This episode is produced by Bronwyn Meehan, and our sound engineer is Oliver Agbissett. Our theme song, A Tune, is written and performed by Annie Vidler. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. 
Do join me next time for more Little Fictions. <laughs>